If you've got a Bible, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 12 this morning. We're going to start reading about the middle of that chapter in just a little bit. Um, but today is a big Sunday for us. Uh, of course, every Sunday should be um, and is a big day for the church. Every Sunday is a big day for God's people. Um, we gather to worship Him. It should never be an insignificant thing that we come into the, to the Lord's house and worship, right? And, and, and you know, I say this all the time. It's not because the house itself is special, but the people of God assembling for the work of God, for the worship of God, that's a big deal. Um, and, and heaven uh, uh, pays attention when the church gathers together, including um, us here um, at, at Risen and including you and, and, and from your pew, from your place, that brings uh, heaven's uh, uh, focus in our direction. And, and we believe that God responds. We believe that God moves in our direction when we move in His direction. And of course, He moves regardless. But there's always something on the line. There's always something on the line when we meet with God. And maybe you don't think about this. Maybe, maybe sometimes Sundays are just another Sunday. Maybe some Sundays are better than the others, right? Um, but, and you may not think about this. I say this a lot. But when you eat, when you eat uh, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or whatever you eat to, to sustain yourself, your life's on the line. Now, you may not remember every meal that you eat. You may not think that every meal that you eat is a phenomenal, uh, life-changing meal. There's very few of those, um, right? And, and the, the, to be honest, but... Your life's on the line every time that you eat because that's what sustains you. In the same way, when we gather to worship and hear from God's Word, our lives are on the line. Sometimes something bigger and something uh, more pressing um, is at hand. Sometimes it's smaller issues. But regardless, there's always something on the line when we meet with God. And, and of course, we meet with God to praise Him. And we believe that God meets with us to bless us. That's the Bible's uh, kind of definition of worship and gathering um, uh, of God's people. We meet to praise Him, um, and God meets to bless us. And, 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 you know, we know this, and you don't need me to explain this to you, but God deserves our praise. But we don't always feel like praising Him, do we? Now, when you've come out of something and God has you know, delivered you and maybe your life is turning in the direction that you've been waiting for, uh, when, you're, when you're feeling good, when life's going good, you love to praise God. Of course, it's almost natural, it, it may be. Uh, but we meet to God. He deserves our praise. But we don't always feel like praising Him. And sometimes we just don't come. Sometimes we just kind of come and we just kind of you know, hang out in, in, in the shadows. Sometimes we just kind of feel like we're just going through the motions. We don't always feel like singing out and worshiping God. But I want you to consider this. We don't always deserve blessing, but God always feels like blessing us. You hear that? That God never doesn't feel like blessing you. God never wakes up and says, of course, God never sleeps, right? God doesn't wake up. He's always been awake, right? But God doesn't, you know, come to Himself when it's morning for us and say, you know what? I, just, I don't know if I feel like being God today. I don't know if I feel like blessing my people today. It's God's nature. It's the goodness of God. It's the overflow of God that always feels like blessing us. So, so that's not that shouldn't be a motivator to praise Him. We should praise Him regardless. But what it should do is cause us to step back and say, wow, and be in awe and, and, and just humble us at how good God is. And, and you know, it's never lost on me. It's never lost on me how sacred this place is for me to stand and how important my job is, my calling is, not because, not because I have anything original or new to add to the table. I'm just repeating and echoing things that far wiser and far more uh, qualified people have been saying for ages and ages and ages. But no, 
it never is lost on me how sacred my job is because God has so much He wants to say to us. And He raises up people to speak on His behalf. And it's not just confined to me and to here. He raises up you to speak and work on His behalf in the world every single day. But I want to kind of let you in on how I arrive at what we talk about any given Sunday. Maybe you're interested in this. Maybe you, maybe you think you know. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you'd like to know. Um, and, and the old saying, how the sausage is made, of course, I think that's kind of that's kind of suggesting that you don't want to know how it's made because it's kind of not appetizing, right? Uh, I don't think this is going to make you think, well, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to hear a sermon if that's how it's made. But seriously, um, I'd li- I think it's important to kind of know, hey, how does he arrive at this, or how does you know? I can't speak for every preacher, every pastor, but I can only speak for myself. But here's what I can let you know is that any given passage from God's Word, any given passage from God's Word is inspired and inspiring. Um, Every single text presents the truth of God and communicates the grace of God. No matter what page you turn to, old or new, prophetical or, uh, you know, uh, gospel, whatever is in between, every text, every inspired Word of God continues to inspire. It presents truth from God and it communicates grace from God. As a preacher, my job is to present the truth and communicate the grace as it is given to us, not adding, not taking away, to show you that it matters to you, to show you that there's an application for you to take and to to learn from and be a better person because of it. So as a pastor, um, there's a contextual and circumstantial responsibility on my shoulders uh, to search the Scriptures to speak to the body that God has put me with and God has trusted me with to use the foundations of God's word as the baseline to lead God's people depending on where we're at what year it is what we're going through and the people and the body the condition that 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 we are facing so there's a lot of things that factor in right but the foundation is the unchanging always inspired always inspiring word of God truth and grace leather bound or hardback bound or maybe on a screen right for you the word of God always the same, presenting us that timeless message. Now, here's what I know, and here's what I strive to be as a pastor, and, and, and I, I say this not to say that there are those that aren't being effective, but an effective pastor, an effective pastor must pray for and desire a prophetic voice and vision from God's Word. And, and by prophetic, I don't mean here's something new that I've seen that you haven't seen and you can't see, but here's what the Word says. Here's what God is leading us to do based on what He has said. Prophetic means speaking forth. It means this is what God has said. This is what we should do with what God has said based on where we're at, what we're going through, who we are, who God is, and who He wants us to be. That's what it means to look for a prophetic prophetic voice and prophetic vision from God's Word, that God's Word speaks forth to us and there's an application for us and that He has something for us no matter what era or generation we may find ourselves in. Now, pastors, hear me clearly, pastors are not apostles or prophets. We're just shepherds. We're following in the steps of those who came before us who wrote this book, who lived this life. The Word, though, is alive. The Word is alive, and we live in any given era, country, times, and season. God uses His Word to guide us. And the Word, it's almost like a dowsing rod, a dowsing rod to help us navigate whatever life throws at us next. But as a pastor, I'm obligated. I'm obligated to seek out how God might be wanting to work in our lives, not just collectively as a body, but also your lives individually. So again, a lot of things factor in. 
to how we arrive at any given text on any given Sunday. And for this reason, for this reason, that you know, I pray that my messages don't just pertain to the season or the circumstance that the body is going through, but I strive that all of the messages that we have here as a, as a church are evergreen. Evergreen meaning that no matter what season of life you're going, you're, you're in, no matter what you're dealing with, or no matter what matter is pressing on you, that the word that is presented on any given Sunday would be evergreen, would be always applicable, always helpful, always presented as it is helping you as you are. As a church, as a people from our particular walk of life, we believe God has something to say to us regardless, collectively or individually. Needless to say, without the help of God, this job is impossible. And doing these messages are, is impossible. But I love the process of seeking after Him. And I've never been let down. I've never been let down because every time I open the Word of God, His Word speaks, His Spirit moves from page to person. And, and that really is a theological anchor of what we believe uh, as you know, evangelicals, as Baptists. We, that's why the Bible and the Word of God is the anchor of our services. We believe the Word of God continues to speak as it was written originally. It speaks to us as we are wherever um, through time the Spirit of God moves from page to person. And I think today's message, I, 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 like I hope and pray with every message, I, hope, I think it challenges, and I hope that it challenges us, not just as a church facing this or that decision, but you, whatever decision you might be facing, whatever might be in front of you, I pray that today's word and message could be that, um, could offer you that challenge and offer you that comfort that you may be looking for. Because ultimately, no matter what you're facing, ultimately, if we're going to follow God, there's really only, excuse the typo, there's really only one right path to take. There's really not many ways. There's not several different options. There's really only ever one right path to take if we are to follow God on any given day. Now, as you would imagine, the right path isn't always the easiest path. Uh, it isn't always the most desirable path. It isn't always the obvious path. Uh, but God always has a path. He always has a way. And the Word always shows us that way. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, God is leading us. Um, we've opened up to 1 Samuel 12. Uh, we're going to go back a few thousand years to the ancient days of Israel um, to around the year 1040 B.C., so about 3,060 years ago, if you do the math, uh, to the era of 1040 B.C. when Israel had just been established as an independent sovereign nation. So in those days, you may have heard this before, in those days Israel had no king, Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. Not really because they wanted to, but because they had no one really showing them that there was a better way. So as you can expect, this led to disaster after disaster. The nation lost connection with God and really established its own idea of God, moving and making decisions based on what they felt was right, based on what they thought was right, based on what they wanted at any given moment. And, and here's a bit of insight for you today, not revolutionary at all. But when everyone does what is, what is right in their own eyes, eyes collide and eyes are poked out, right? That when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, eyes collide and eyes are often poked out and far worse 
happens, actually. Such was the fallout of the, this pathway that Israel was on. The scripture tells us, the history of Israel tells us, that the corruption and lostness was not just exclusive to a certain demographic or sector of society, but it affected the entire nation, even the faith community. The priests and leaders lost their way. And if you trace the story back and try to figure out where they lost their way, what caused this disconnect, it really all started when they settled in the promised land. Now, if you know the story of Exodus and the wilderness period that happened afterwards, as they're on the move, you read those stories, God used that time to condition the nation uh, for what it would be like in the promised land and how they should live their lives and, and conduct themselves in the promised land. And we know that God did a lot of awesome things to show him um, the, the, his role in their lives and, and how they should understand his, the importance of faith. During the wilderness period, um, God guided them with clouds and pillars of fire. He fed them with manna and quail out of the heavens. He dug wells for them in the middle of the desert. Uh, he told them up front, when you make it to the land, it's not going to be this way. Water is not just going to come out of random rocks when you make it into the land. There's not going to be supernatural clouds, of, uh, clouds and pillars of fire leading you day by day down every direction. Bread's not just going to fall out of heaven. Chicken isn't just going to roast itself on the fire for you every evening. And maybe you wonder, why, why wouldn't God do that? I mean, if God did it for 40 years in the desert, why wouldn't He do that once they made it into the promised land? Uh, because God was leading them into a land that had plenty. There would be an abundance in the land, and they would always have enough. And their purpose was to live in such a way that would point the surrounding world to the one true God. By getting up every day and living for Him, living in light of His presence and provisions, others would see and follow suit. But also, also, they had been conditioned to rely on and trust in God for everything. If He didn't provide, they wouldn't survive. So God conditioned them during those 40 years that, so that even when they made it to the land and had everything that they needed, they still would understand God has provided. God's the reason we're surviving so we cannot turn our backs. We cannot turn away from Him. He is the reason we have anything. And He turned them loose in the promised land. They, had, they lacked nothing. He wanted them to enjoy the plenty of this land, this land of good fortune. They had free will. They had a free will to either honor God or dishonor God, to consume and presume on God's favor or receive from and respond to God's favor. They could consume it and presume it would always be there or they could pause every time they received from Him and respond to Him with praise and honor. God gave them this warning before they moved in. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His rules, His statutes, which I command you today. So Moses warned them that it would be easy for them to forget. Once they were full. And sure enough, when they got into the land, they settled down and something changed. Not abruptly, but subtly. From the top down, the leadership drifted. The nation drifted. The priests and elders of the faith community drifted away. They set up the tabernacle, this tent that had been this you know, traveling worship uh, environment. They set up the tabernacle up at a place called Shiloh. And suddenly, they became like other nations. God was confined to a building. And they would visit Him there, but they would leave Him there. 
And everyone went, up, went about doing what was right in their own eyes. Well, maybe not everyone. The story tells us, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the corrupt priest. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So the, the story is trying to get us to understand that the nation was lost, that nobody was seeking God's will, the priesthood was corrupt, that there was no one you know, really, nav- really guiding the nation as to what they should do or shouldn't do. At the time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. And if you read the Old Testament, eyesight is always, uh, from leadership and the eyesight of the leaders is always a sign as to how, how, long, you know, how uh, healthy the vision for the nation is. Moses, his, uh, famously, had perfect vision up until the day that he died. But Eli, a corrupt priest, could not see well, which communicated that the whole nation had lost its vision and was losing its way. But the lamp of God had not yet gone out. The writer tells us, but all hope was not lost. That God's lamp was still burning and the boy Samuel, the boy Samuel was his chosen vessel to spark the light to the nation. The Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. So the story begins, the light remained on. God raised up a prophet with that light before all hope was lost. God began calling this young servant boy. The story goes in verse number 10 of that chapter. The Lord came and stood calling as other times. Samuel, Samuel. And the Lord said, speak for your servant hears. The Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears will tingle. So God's going to get the attention of the nation again and remind them or, or maybe awake them up from their slumber in their faith. So God uses Samuel to call the nation back to faith in God. And the nation fends off attacks from their enemies as Samuel intercedes and leads the nation in prayer. And every time Samuel prays, God sets the nation free. Here's one example. Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel. The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the Scripture says after that that Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So Samuel set up this rock, this Ebenezer stone, as it was called in tradition. This would remind the nation that we have all we need in the Lord if we trust in Him, if we turn to Him, if we keep our eyes on Him. We will never get lost. We will always know the right thing to do and always be in the right place. The nation began to prosper and the faith of the people in God was restored. But a small group of dissenters began campaigning for a different kind of leader in Israel. A prophet who always made things about faith in God just killed the mood sometimes. It made things awkward around the rest of the nations that lived differently. They wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted a king, a king who didn't spiritualize everything, but talked more on their level. So a group rises up and comes to Samuel and says, we formally reject your leadership of our nation. We've assembled representatives from all over the land, from every tribe of Israel, and we are looking to establish an official united kingdom of Israel. We are looking for a king. Your time is done, Samuel. But it wasn't just God's t- Samuel's time that was done. 
They were dismissing God as their king. And it broke Samuel's heart because he knew what was behind this movement. Not because he wanted to be their king, but because he spent his life trying to direct their eyes and attention to God who was their one and only king. And God tells Samuel, listen Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So Samuel does warn them of where this line of thought would take them, but they insist, we want a king. And they find the tallest and the most handsome man in all the land and make him their king. And Saul leads the nation to a place of self-sufficiency, sovereignty, independence, autonomy. They lack nothing and have pride and patriotism galore. Saul becomes a hero. Saul becomes the story. And the Ebenezer stone is torn down. And Samuel watches from afar. He sees the nation's faith in God dropping and dropping. He doesn't wish bad on anyone. He doesn't wish Saul to stumble or the nation to stumble. But Samuel knows what's going to happen to the nation. Because Samuel knows what you know. Imperfect people, leaders and nations, always, eventually, inevitably stumble. Samuel wasn't hoping for the nation to fall. He just knew the nation would fall. And when it fell, they would have no hope and no faith. Because it had abandoned its faith in God to trust in a man and stuff and everything but God. And on Inauguration Day, this is so powerful, on Inauguration Day, Samuel steals the show as the crowd is leaving the celebration of King Saul's coronation. As they're leaving the king being crowned, Samuel is across the valley on a hillside making sacrifice to God, praying for the nation. And Samuel was a little bit bold. He was a little brash. He rolls his sleeves up and begins to call the nation to himself. And he says, y'all don't have to listen to me, but I'm not going to stop talking just because you stop listening. And he begins to call down the mighty presence of God. And it begins to thunder and lightning. And the wind begins to blow. And everyone begins to listen. And jumping in midstream, Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Listen to what Samuel says to the nation. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. You have gotten what you wanted. If you fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before you. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and He will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourself. So what was their sin? In turning from God to a man. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And the nation began to have second thoughts. They began to worry as they had moved farther away from the original vision for the land What was God trying to tell them in verse number 19? All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord that your God, we may not die, for we have added to all of our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. And Samuel said, I tried to tell you all that. Verse 20, Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. 
Now, this is a very weird sentence. I, you probably agree. Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. What? Do not be afraid. You've sinned. Now, usually, that's not the structure of the sentence you would expect. Be afraid, you've sinned. Or do not be afraid, you have not sinned. Those would make sense. But Samuel says, do not be afraid, you have done all this wickedness. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. You mean He's just going to let us off the hook? You mean God's just going to say, well, it's okay. You're still my people. I mean, we just rejected God. We just told God thanks, but no thanks. And you're telling us that God is still our God and still wants us as His people? Because that's not how religion works, Samuel, and that's not how the gods of the world work. You're telling us that God of Israel is... This way, verse 21, Do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing, even though they'd already done that. Verse 22, For the Lord your God will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you His people. And Samuel lets us in on a side of God that is just so hard to comprehend, isn't it? You've sinned, but don't worry. You are God's people, and He will never forsake His people. As much wrong as we've done, God hasn't forsaken us, and He never will. And the whole point of this really was to send a message to the crowd, uh, send someone, in the, someone in the crowd that maybe was like Samuel. Maybe someone who hadn't completely walked away from God even though the nation had. To raise up someone to be the next generation Samuel. To hold that flame and carry that torch. Samuel says to the crowd that day, know this, you have you who have faith, even though the nation lacks it, even though the leadership lacks it, you can make a difference at who knows how deep and wide of an impact if you simply do what you know is required of you. God is still God, whatever we, whether you worship Him or not. And those who choose to walk by faith when it's difficult or not easy are primed to experience the fullness of His power and presence. Those who choose to live as if they're still in the wilderness. If God does not provide, we won't survive. Those who receive everything with gratitude and live with a God-first attitude. And when we find ourselves in these situations, when things are stacked against us, Samuel's advice isn't that we be frozen with fear, but that we stay faithful that we continue in the good and right way. Because in any situation, in any situation, when you're facing whatever God is in, has in front of you, whenever you're facing something that you don't really know why it's here and where it, where it, what its purpose is, in any situation, you can do nothing, you can do something wrong, or you can do something right. That's not rocket science, but that's just the truth, right? You can stand still, you can go the wrong way, or you can go the right way. And while the right thing may not be everything, may not make everything right, but if it's God's way, Samuel assures us God will not forsake us, God will not forget us, we will not be swept away. And that's what leads us to chapter 14. A few years into Samuel, Saul's reign as king, Saul has lost control of the wheel. He's completely off the rails, he's in over his head, he's drunk with power. He's pushed Samuel out of the picture. The enemies of Israel have regrouped and are surrounding the nation, vying for attack. And Saul secretly leaves the country in retreat because he has no idea what to do, nor does he really care what to do, honestly. 
And the army and leaders of Israel are worried, sick. If the nation finds out that our king has abandoned us, they will panic and it will be chaos and there will be riots. As the throne is empty, all eyes turn to Saul's son, Jonathan. And here's how that story goes in chapter 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, they're in a secret meeting, they realize Saul has left the country, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gabeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. So Saul took his entourage of soldiers to the other side of the country to have a vacation. Because Saul knew he, had the, he did not have the wherewithal to defend the nation, nor did he really want to. So he checks out. Because when you give a man absolute power, you will absolutely give him the ability to do whatever he wants to. And it'll never be for your good. So Saul has left the country with his army, and it's just Jonathan and a few of his servants. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, and Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, were wearing the ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So Jonathan you know, kind of uh, escapes to his own uh, meeting with this guy because he, he doesn't approve of his father running away. Between the passage by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. So Jonathan was literally between a rock and a hard place. He had no army. He escaped from the palace without anyone knowing what was going on. The nation was scared to death. The armies of Philistia was around them. Verse 5, The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, the other southward opposed opposite Gibeah. So the nation was surrounded. And Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said, Do all that is in your heart. Go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. So Jonathan arrives at this place. We can't take no way. We can't do nothing. Because if we do nothing, the enemy will overtake us. And if we do it Saul's way, if we run and leave the nation vulnerable, then we dig a deeper hole and we suffer the the responsibility of defending the nation. And if we let the nation suffer, we'll always live in light of that. And Jonathan says, we don't know exactly what to do, but we know what God would have us to do. Defend our people and follow Him. We don't know everything about God's way, but we do know that's where God is. Jonathan says, I don't know, I have not been under the teaching of a prophet or a priest. I know little to nothing about God. But I know that if we're going to do this God's way, we have to go where God is. And if we go where God is, God is the way. He will make a way. If we stand still, we'll suffer. If we do wrong, we'll struggle. But if we turn to God, If we turn to God, we'll find the security we need and the success God wants. Now, it may not be the security that we want or the success that we want or how we define success and security, but if we go with God, we will not be insecure and we will not be unsuccessful. Jonathan does not have a very spelled out plan. He just says, let's go and face the enemy. Let's go and defend the nation. Let's do the right thing. Let's do the God thing. Just think about this. 
Jonathan has no Bible. After generations of falling away, there is little to no insight about God. And he says, guys, I think we're better off going with the God who pardoned Israel at the Passover, who parted the Red Sea, who provided in the desert, who poured Himself out on the mountain, because whether He shows us a little of His power or a lot of His power, we're in good hands. We're in God's hands. And where this even gets better, church, because on this side of things, we don't have to wonder, perhaps the Lord, or it may be that the Lord... Come on, what Samuel told us back in chapter 22, God will not forsake you. God will not forsake His people. We've had that proven to us because on the cross of Calvary, Jesus died for us. And Jonathan said, maybe God will, but we can say, I know God will. And if you're new to this, if you wonder, why does it always come back to the cross? The cross is ground zero for our confidence in God. It defines His intent and His love and His desire for you and for me and for us. Because on the cross, God proved, God demonstrated, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinning, Jesus died for sinners. So the cross proves there's no perhaps the Lord will be good. Maybe the Lord will lead us. The cross assures us that God will lead. God is good. God does love. So what was a maybe for Jonathan is a definitely for us. That God is going to work. That God is going to move. It's not perhaps the Lord. It's not maybe the Lord. It's definitely the Lord. Because on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we know. We know that all things work together for good. For those who love God. Those who are the called according to His purpose. His plan. We might not know everything, but we know the main thing. We know that God has a plan. His plan is redeeming and His plan is resurrecting. You know what that means? God's redeeming plan assumes, allows for, anticipates, accounts for, and atones for every error, every mistake, every stumbling block, every sin. God's redeeming plan expects you to fail. And He expects to make it right. God's resurrecting plan reaches down, fills in, raises up, and empowers in our weaknesses. It figures there's going to be gaps and holes and valleys and pitfalls and says, I've got this covered. And it reaches down and resurrects us from the bottomless of pits. God's redeeming plan provided an atoning sacrifice. His resurrecting plan provides an abiding spirit. And listen, God's spirit knows a lot more than we know. And you make your best decisions when you let God make them for you. And that doesn't mean you know everything, but it means you have chosen to walk by faith. That you gauge every decision. How much of this decision is faith-based? How much am I depending on God or am I depending too much on myself? I mean, isn't that the New Testament imperative? Walk by faith, not by sight? And here's Jonathan willing to walk by faith when he doesn't even have proof that God's going to work for him. But we know. Maybe you're currently doing nothing about something. 
The enemy has camped around you, he's immobilized you, and he's frozen you, and you're not going anywhere. Maybe everything's just stuck in place for you, and God is calling you to start walking by faith again. To go home with a different perspective. To go to work with a different attitude. To turn to those that matter most and realize why you've been put here and that you shouldn't put them off anymore. Maybe there's an area of your life where you've, where you've said things like this. I really need to start. I really should focus on. Eventually, we'll have to. How many times have you said that? How many times are you going to say that? Why wait? Because it's hard? Because it's inconvenient? Because you're scared? Listen, you know what's hard? Is breaking free from the enemy when he's dominating you. That's hard. That's impossible. You know what's inconvenient? When you've gotten so far out of God's will, you don't even know which way to turn. You know what's scary? When another day has passed and you've done nothing. Maybe you're down the road so far in the wrong direction, you've turned away from God as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a single person, wherever you are in life. Maybe you're so far, you don't even know where you got off track. It's time to walk by faith back to God. Face your enemies. Face the decisions and choices that you've made that maybe weren't the best. But doing so with the redeeming and resurrecting power of God, believing that things can be saved. That you can be saved. Maybe you've made poor spiritual decisions, poor financial decisions. Maybe you've made some moral failures and professional missteps. Maybe your heart and mind are polluted with things that have gotten you mixed up and confused as to what direction you could take. The Gospel reminds me, the Gospel reminds you that we can be redeemed from our failures and we can be resurrected from our fears. Jonathan said, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Jesus says, it will be that I will work for you. Isn't that good? Jonathan says, God might work for us. Jesus says, I have worked for you, and I will work for you, and I always will work for you. Because we know... Now here's the thing. I don't know how God's going to work. It may fit your idea. It may fly in the face of your idea so that nobody can boast. The heart of the cross is that God's going to get all the glory. And let's not dwell on what's unknown, but what is known. God is the mover. He is the enabler. All throughout the Bible, people try to detect patterns of how God moves and when God does this, and do you have to pray first, and does does He wait on prayer, does He always answer? It's hard to detect a pattern sometimes of how the Holy Spirit works. I just know this, the Spirit of God is sovereign, He is supreme, He is almighty, He's not a fog machine we turn on, He's not a cloud that we call down, He's not a ghost we conjure up, He is God, He has a will, He has a plan, He has a desire for every soul and every season and every scene and the church is not in control or charting course for the Spirit. He charts our course. He is in control. And if we fail to seek Him and be sensitive to Him and obey Him, we get lost. There is a temptation to always feel as if we know. As if we know everything ourselves. We know what's best for our lives, our professional paths, our money, our health, our family, our country. Sometimes there are people around us that tell us to change our mind or confirm our decisions. When's the last time that you went to God and said, God, I don't know, but I know that you know. And God, I think 
I want, I feel this or that about me, my, and this and that. But I want to be honest, God. I don't know. But you do. I think a lot, of, a lot of us understand God as someone or something we can hold as if He's a key or a hall pass that we take with us. But there's no security in having a God you can hold in your hand. God is not a ticket. He's not a key. He's not a pass. God is not that small. He doesn't fit in your pocket. He doesn't fit in your wallet. He doesn't hang on your wall. He's not a day in your history. He's not a day and a time in your past. He's bigger than that. You know, there's no security in holding God in your hand. But you know where there is security? God holding us in His hand. And you might not always can feel around and know where it's going or know what's going to happen when you can't hold Him, when He's holding you, but you can always know that wherever you bow, wherever you stop, wherever you fall on your knees, that's where He is because you are trusting in Him. As in we fall on our knees, we seek His face, and guess what? Guess who is our solid rock, our foundation? It's God. And like a father clutching and enveloping the hand of his child, God comforts and reminds us that I've got this. Trust in me. Abide in me. And I will abide in you. Just walk by faith. Jonathan set an example for us. Even when we don't know. Jesus made a way for us because we know, don't we? Stepping out on faith and a God who is able isn't risky at all, no matter what. He is our exceedingly great reward. So no matter what you face, the best we can possibly do is respond to God as He is, when He moves, how He wills. Because we know that He cannot fail and He's got so much vested interest in you, He won't let us fail either. You hear that? He cannot fail and if you are in His hand, you cannot fail either. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm thankful that you have the final word. God, if there's somebody here today that they're trying to do it their way and they have a little religion and they believe in you and they've got a certificate on their wall and their history and their pocket and their church tradition that they say, you know, that makes me in. If God's a key that they take to every door and try to make it work and they move to the next one. If God is just some sort of a ticket or some sort of a pass to them. God, help us to fall on our knees and realize that you're the one holding us. We're not holding you. God, Jonathan had so much faith. He said to his armor bearer, it's just me and you, buddy. The armies are gone. The king is gone. The nation is in disarray. But perhaps the Lord will work for us. We've got to make, take the chance. We've got to walk by faith. And God, on this side of the cross, we have no excuse. Because we know that you have worked for us. And we know that you will always work for us. And if we just trust in you and walk by faith, we have nothing to fear. Because you are with us and for us. Father, I pray this invitation would speak to somebody's heart. God, if somebody wants to come and surrender to you, I pray this altar would be that place for them. That ground zero put their confidence in you. 
God, for the rest of us as we sing out this song, may the words in your spirit renew our faith, strengthen our faith, and lead us to the right place. In Jesus' name, amen.